0: So we'll, yeah, Acts chapter 10, just a bit of a context for this, we're working through a series looking at the book of Acts. This is the story of the birth of the church, and actually it's quite helpful that we remind ourselves of the very beginning of the book of Acts. You remember it begins with Jesus speaking to and teaching his disciples before he ascends to heaven, and he tells them, He promises them that they will be his witnesses across the world. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And we've seen that as we've looked through the book of Acts, we've worked through the initial chapters, and we've come to see what God is doing in Jerusalem. And we've seen something of the kind of new community that he is forming. And in these chapters, in fact, it starts in Acts chapter 9, we see a kind of shift, a turning point, where the focus comes off just the Jerusalem church, and God starts to reveal to his people his global purposes. The sense to which he is saying, the nations are mine, and he wants to reveal to us his his purpose is to reach and reconcile the nations around the throne of Christ. In Acts chapter 9 that we looked at last week, um, around Paul's conversion, uh, you remember Paul was a, a, a murderous Jewish thug who was basically persecuting the church. And, um, and in his conversion, there's a man called Ananias, and God kind of sends Ananias to go and speak to him. And when he's speaking, Ananias is is rightly scared, basically. He's thinking, I'm not going to go and talk to that guy. He was persecuting Christians. He was around when they were being martyred and murdered. But then God says this to Ananias. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Saying, I have prepared Paul to take my name to the Gentiles. And then in Acts chapter 10, we're going to see the conversion of a man called Cornelius. He's a Roman centurion, and we see not only his conversion, but actually his family and his community. And if you've read it, you might kind of think, oh, that's nice, God saves him, kind of move on. But what you may fail to see is that this is actually a profoundly shocking moment. It's a shocking moment. In fact, when the Jews hear about the conversion of this non-Jewish Roman centurion, they are deeply offended. These are Jews who follow Jesus. They're the early church. And when they hear what's happened, they're angry. Which kind of sounds a bit bizarre, doesn't it? They should be excited about the conversion. But what they've heard that Peter has gone and preached the gospel, has gone and spent time with Cornelius, has eaten with him, and they are offended that Peter would go and eat with these Gentiles. And, uh, And what you need to understand, to understand the kind of the backdrop here, why are they so offended? You, you have to understand something of the relationship between Jews and Gentiles at the time. That the Jews were given a specific set of laws and instructions. And the, part of those laws and instructions were a command to carry a kind of distinctiveness. To carry and display something of the holiness of God to the world around them. And you find them all the way through the first few books of the Bible. But at some point, that gets twisted. And these laws that are intended to enable them to walk in a holy way and reveal the holiness of God to the nations around them become instead an excuse for superiority, a sense of, we are better than them. That sense of disdain and antipathy. And you can hear that in one uh, piece of writing called uh, from the Jubilees, kind of around this, this period. This is Jews writing to other Jews. It says this, Keep yourself separate from the nations. The Guim. Do not eat with them and do not institute their rituals or associate with them. There's a sense of fear of those Gentiles, how they might lead us away from God, a sense of superiority and a sense of disdain. But in, against all of that backdrop, what we see is God is loudly and clearly saying, No, I am going to reach the nations. And we get something of God's heart to reveal himself to all people, but ultimately to create a kind of united family of Jew and Gentile, of every nation around the throne of Christ. And when they understand this, they are gobsmacked. They are silenced. At the end of the passage you're going to read, they are literally silenced, because they're kind of saying, how would the living God choose to also save these non-Jews, these Gentiles? So we're at a significant point where we see God's heart to reach the nation's. Let me um, kind of give you a summary because it's quite a long passage. I'll read from bits of it. We start at the beginning of Acts chapter 10, and we've got Peter and Cornelius. And Cornelius is a Roman centurion. He's a devout man, he's God fearing, and he's kind of been part of the synagogue community. And he's up in Caesarea, where the Roman prefect is based. So he's up in the north of the country, and he has a, a vision which basically God is saying to him, I'm going to send Peter to you and he's going to explain to you, right? So he sends his Roman soldiers, a couple of his men, to go and bring Simon, who's called Peter, from Joppa, which is modern-day Jaffa, which is near Tel Aviv. So kind of go down, basically a day's travel down to the south of the country, go and get Peter and bring him back. And at the same time, as he has that vision, God gives Peter a vision. And that's what we're going to pick up, verse 9. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. So he's saying there are all animals here, but Peter's a good Jewish boy. He's been following the Jewish laws. He knows that he shouldn't be eating some of the animals on this sheet. But actually, this isn't really about animals. I mean, God's, Jesus has already spoken to them in Mark chapter 7, where he says, you're, you're, you're not made righteous by what goes into you. Actually, what, may, what defines your righteousness is what comes out of you. And so he's declared, already declared all foods to be clean. This isn't about food. But then, and the voice came to him a second, again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, so he's kind of thinking this through, behold, behold. The men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry from Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who is p- called Peter, was lodging there. So the men have come to pick up Peter, and they take Peter back up to Cornelius, and Cornelius has arranged his family, his community, his extended, even some friends, are there ready to hear Peter speak. And the first thing he does, Cornelius, then st- when Peter arrives, he worships him. And Peter says, no, 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 don't stand up. And then this is what Peter said verse 27. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked them why are you sent for me? By the way, it's interesting. he says it's not lawful. It's actually just more like he's saying it's not traditional. It's not our custom. He's saying, my people don't spend time with your people. This is not normal for me. This is my first time in a Gentile house. And I, I kind of, you can almost feel the discomfort in what he's saying. And then Cornelius explains. And then Peter goes on to share the gospel with them. He goes on to tell them about Christ and his ministry and his death and his resurrection. But interestingly, he begins and ends the section where he goes on to share the gospel by really restating the, what we call the universality of the gospel. The sense that God's promises are for all people. That all people are invited in to worship the living God. So verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. God shows no partiality. He doesn't say I'm for these people and not these people. He's looking for those who fear him and obey him from whatever nation. And then at the end of, that, uh, of his speech he says, To him who all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's a universal offer of salvation and forgiveness for all who believe in him, whatever nation you're coming from. This is breaking their boxes. (laughs) What? This is for all people? And then we see a Pentecost moment. A recapitulation of what we've already seen at the beginning of the book of Acts. As they turn to God and the Holy Spirit is poured out upon them, they speak in tongues, exactly what we saw at Pentecost, and as a result of that, Peter says, Well, we've got to baptize them. While Peter, this is verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcision who'd come with Peter were amazed. They're amazed. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling, worshipping God. Then Peter declared, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who've received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked him to remain for some days. And that doesn't quite capture it. To re- he, they ask him to remain for some days. Peter spends time with them. They have food together. There must be an atmosphere of celebration. They've baptized them. He, there's delight This this is the first multi-ethnic church. Jew and Gentile reconciled together, sharing food together, celebrating that God has brought salvation to the Gentiles. And then what's the reaction? Totally not what you'd expect. Chapter 11, the the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. They're offended at the possibility. And then later on, Peter then has to kind of explain it. And the way he explains it, he says, well, look, verse 17 and 18. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? God's pouring out his Holy Spirit on the Gentiles, how could I oppose him? And then, when they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying then to the gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life there are two conversions going on in this story we are seeing Cornelius and his community converted to Christ and we are seeing Peter being slowly converted to see that God intends to reach all people that he can no longer look down on on these gentiles a kind of end to his ethnic superiority and animosity. He is being challenged. You can kind of hear it in, his, in, his, in the middle when he, when he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me. It's like, almost like from when he first had the vision to now, as he's made his way down, uh, up the country, at some point he's kind of, oh, oh God has shown me all people are not beyond the grace of God, that God intends to reach the nations. And he's humbled. And just as God is opening his eyes, I perhaps think the same has to happen for us. As we see this passage, we must hear the challenge that God intends to reach the nations. God intends to reach and reconcile the nations around the throne of Christ. And I think this just feels kind of routine. You look around the room, you're like, well, yeah, duh. Look, they're all here. (laughs) Lots of different people from different nations are seated in this room. But yeah, I want us to just step back and to see something of the beauty of that vision. And not just to see the beauty of that, but also to be challenged to live out that reality wholeheartedly together as a community. To run towards each other and to pursue deep, wholehearted relationships across different ethnic and cultural backgrounds such that we show the world that the cross of Christ has a unique power to reconcile people from all different backgrounds in a way that nothing else can compare. That is our challenge as a people of God but I wonder also whether this would challenge us whether we are willing to make ourselves uncomfortable like Peter It's the first time I've been in a Gentile house, Peter's saying, to make ourselves uncomfortable to take the gospel into the world. So I want to give you three questions this evening. Do you realize the beauty and significance of God's plan to reach and reconcile the nations? Second of all, what does this mean for our life together? And thirdly, are we willing to follow Peter's example to make ourselves uncomfortable and step outside our culture So first of all, do you realize the beauty and significance of God's plan to reach and reconcile the nations? It would be easy to overlook this moment. I want us to see and to celebrate God's plan to draw folk from every nation into the people of Christ. And zoom out for a moment, because this is kind of one moment, but we need to zoom out. and See, this is the great, grand narrative of God's purposes all the way through Scripture. You think, well, hang on a minute. I thought the Old Testament was all about just Jewish people. Well, that's not very international. Actually, even then, go back right back to Genesis chapter 12. This is the calling of Abraham, who will become Abraham. And you know the story. Uh, maybe you do, maybe you don't. But um, Abraham has a family, and, then the, and the family becomes a nation, and the people of Israel... But this, is, this begins with God calling a Mesopotamian agriculturalist out from where he's from, and he gives him a promise. And this is what he says to him. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So he's talking about the formation of the people of Israel. That you will be a blessing. I will bless those who who bless you, and to him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Saying, even as I form you as a distinct people, he describes later on, he goes on to describe Israel as his treasured possession. Even as I give specific promises to this people, they were always intended to be a light to the nations. They were always intended to be a display of the character of God to the people around them of course they fail. They end up giving in to the the culture, uh, the idol worship around them, and they don't they look anything different to the people around them. And then Christ enters into the world. And Christ's death and resurrection, he, he lives the life we couldn't live, and he dies on our behalf, and in his death, he, distro- he fulfills everything that we couldn't do, And in doing so, he makes a way back to God for all people so that people from every nation can be drawn round the throne of the living God. And we see this moment, the kind of moment where the focus changes. And from this, the rest of the book of Acts, you'll see the nations are being reached. The the church is sent out and they go and see folk come from Europe and Asia and all sorts of places as the church is established with the Gentiles. But where does it end? When you're looking at a kind of project, you think, what, what is the goal here? And the goal is captured beautifully, I would argue, in Revelation chapter 7. The end goal of God's great salvation work in the world is the nations gathered round the throne of Christ together. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and with palm branches in their hands. I think this is you can't quite do justice to this image. <laughs> Imagine for a moment people from every nation gathered around the throne of Christ. The sense to which we see something of the universality of the gospel. The sense that the gospel is for all people. The sense in which we see the power of the gospel. I.e. the gospel is powerful enough to win people from every nation. We see something of the glory of God in this moment. Something of the sense to which the majesty and glory of God demands that people from every nation worship him. The sense to which God is no parochial deity. You know the sense to which different tribes and and communities have have established themselves and kind of said, this God is our God and that God kind of becomes a kind of talisman or or figurehead for their culture. But it says, no, the living God is not like that. He is not constrained to one culture. The living God is calling people from every nation. And when you see that, when you see the power and potential of the gospel to unite the nations around the throne of Christ, both in its reach and in its power to reconcile, I think you think that's beautiful. Think for a moment of Hutus and Tutsis worshipping together, Jews and Arabs worshipping side by side in Christ, Ukrainians and Russians. The gospel is doing the impossible. When you just thought, imagine that moment, it's a beautiful image. I wanted to show you a little video that doesn't, won't live up to the, the image that we that see, but just gives us a flavor. Oh, why not? So basically, they're singing. Uh, you want to turn the, the volume off as well? They are singing, um, if you want to go back to the beginning, they are, they are singing uh, Amazing Grace. And what we've got is different people, this was recorded in lockdown, together, all just singing one song. And it's a beautiful moment picture which captures that. just a glimpse. It's just a glimpse of the way the gospel has the power to draw people of all different nations around the throne of Christ. The way that the nations will be reconciled together. That Christ is for all people. It's a beautiful picture. And I want to ask you the question, if you can... Put it down, otherwise, everyone's just going to spend the time looking at the flags trying to work it out. <laughs> Isn't this what the world is longing for? Isn't this what our world is crying out for as we see and think about the litany of lives that have been destroyed because of the ethnic divisions that have existed between peoples, the genocides? The, re- the lingering resentments between nations, the sense of one upmanship as nation fights nation, trying to prove themselves superior to others. Or even as we see it today, hidden in perhaps continuing in kind of more hidden ways in a, in a culture like ours. Think about the cultural superiority going on in British culture. Some of you are coming in and you're like, I just can't get it. All this mention of class, and you've got middle class and working class and lower middle class and upper middle class, and it's a complex combination of how much money you earn and where you live and what, who, what your parents did. And it's all just basically people parceling people off into different parts of society looking down on others. Whether it's kind of people looking down on others with kind of snobbery or people looking down on people above them with a kind of reverse snobbery. Or the ethnic animosity that lingers beneath the surface sometimes. The sense of stereotypes or otherness that people are made to feel. The sense that others are made to feel less than. Or even the what we might call the kind of superficial diversity of a city like London, where you've got all sorts of different groups living in close geographic proximity to one another, but there's no real unity going on, that they're all kind of spending time in ethnic cultural silos, not really eating together. And what the remarkable thing is, is that the church is the answer to our culture's longings. In a world longing for inclusion and acceptance, the early church was one of the most inclusive and diverse groups of people. And actually, that has the power to... Provoke, I would argue, to a secular culture that sees the divisions in society and is longing for inclusion and acceptance. We say it is found in Christ. You see this, uh, Rain Wilson, uh, an actor. He's a member of the Baha'i faith, and he was uh, on a talk show being interviewed by a Christian recently. And this is how he put it. He's, He's kind of Drawn towards Christianity because of this diversity, he says, never before in the history of humanity had a more diverse group of people gathered and been welcomed, loved, and accepted than the early Christian church. In a society that is longing for a way to find unity, we have that unity in Christ. The church is the answer to a society's longings, it's intended to be a picture of that reconciliation. I gave you that picture of Revelation chapter 7. You may have heard the idea that the church is intended to be a show home of the new creation. You see this in London, you go around and there's kind of a flat that you can try before if you want to go and live in the block that they're building. It's a kind of show home. You kind of get a taste of what it's like. The church is meant to be a kind of show home, a taste of our new creation reality. So if we see new creation as this one group of people united around the throne of Christ, the church is intended to be a picture of that reconciliation and unity a place of no hostility, no partiality, no sense of superiority between different ethnic and cultural groups. It hasn't always been that way, but that is what the church is meant to be. See this in the book of Ephesians. Andrew looked at this in the autumn. He's speaking, Paul is writing to a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of non-Christians, sorry, a bunch of non-Jews who are Christians. And he's reminding them, he says, you were once far off He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, that's Jew and Gentile, made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. I mentioned before, the law had become a kind of source of hostility, that Jews looked down on Gentiles. They didn't follow this law. They were not just ceremonially unclean. They were kind of unclean, dirty. You say, no, the law has been fulfilled in Christ. The ceremonial civil law, the, the instructions on diets has been removed. Now we live under the law of Christ. Now there's no more hostility. There's no more dividing wall of hostility. And now you are one new man in Christ. There are no outsiders in the church. If you have put your faith in Christ, you are an insider, wherever you're coming from. And if you felt like an outsider at various points, which then may very well may be the case if you're perhaps not part of the white majority in this culture, for example. If you felt like an outsider, this says loudly and clearly, you are an insider. You're included in Christ. You're part of the family reconciled around the throne. And we see this lived out in the book of Acts. Just a few chapters later, in, in Acts chapter 13, we get this picture of the Antioch church. And it's a, a Gentile, there's Gentiles and Jews there. And you see that in the leadership team that is leading this church. there are a diverse group of male elders. Or prophets and teachers. We've got Barnabas, a Cypriot Jew, Simeon, who was called Niger, so he's a black man, probably from southern, northern Africa, Lucius of Cyrene, that's Libya, so he's a North African guy, uh, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, he is part of the Jewish elite, probably from Israel, and Saul, who was from Turkey, from Tarsus. So you've all right there, you've got European, Middle Eastern, you've got Jewish, Gentile, African, European. You've got this wonderful, diverse group of t- uh, leaders. And that is a picture of what the church is intended to be. Now, of course, there'll be contexts where there's just a mono-ethnic context. If you're in kind of some part of East Anglia, for example, I don't know, there might just be one group, ethnic group, and that would be completely normal. But in a context like ours at Grace London, where we have a diverse city, we have an opportunity to display something of the power of the gospel to unite all different ethnicities and cultures around the throne of Christ. And that is a wonderful privilege we have. Because what we need to see is that the gospel has a unique power to reconcile people. You see, from a, we, we live in a culture that is crying out for this kind of sense of inclusion and unity. But actually, it can't do it, it can't bring it. From a secular perspective, we would just say, from a, from a kind of, if there's no God, you're just a clump of cells. And actually, there's no reason why I should treat you with dignity and respect except because I believe it's important. There's no reason to believe that we're all equal if we're all just a clump of cells. But the Christian faith says, no, actually, no one is unclean. You heard that in, in, when um, Peter's being instructed. No, not, I should not call any person common or unclean because we're all made in the image of God. We all have a sense of worth and dignity that comes by being an image bearer, by one who carries the image of God. So you cannot look down and judge and kind of feel superior to someone, who, someone else because we all carry something of the image of the living god on us isn't that incredible what a va- what dignity the christian faith gives each human being it Says no you're not just a clump of cells you're made in the image of god but it also said it also humbles you because it says also you were so sinful that christ had to die for you in a sense we say you're all clean you're all all valuable but yet you're also all unclean in the sense of you all need christ to die for you so that you can be cleansed from your sins and be forgiven you're all, in one sense, both clean and unclean. You both have dignity, and yet you also have humility. You can never look down on another because you come to Christ on your knees. Uh, one preacher put it, he said, if you're on your knees, and I'll, I'll do it, but none of you can see me now because I'm so short, but if you're on your knees, <laughs> you, you can't look down on other people because you're already <laughs> kneeling down. I can't look down on people anyway, but my point is, <laughs> when you come to Christ on your knees, It is the ultimate antidote to any kind of superiority that you might feel. Because you know that Christ had to die for you. (laughs) So it humbles us and it dignifies us. But also Christianity deals with the heart. The way that often our world seeks to deal with the problem of ethnic animosity and resentment between nations and cultures is to try and put systems and structures in place, and there can be some good in that. But often it creates a kind of veneer of diversity. It doesn't deal with the problem at the heart level where people just pay lip service to this idea. But Christ deals with you at the heart. He deals with that superiority that is lingering in your heart that no one else can see because he sees it all. And also, Christianity unites almost organically. And what I mean by that is, as Christians, we don't primarily make this our primary focus. Instead, we make the worship of Christ... And the invitation of Christ taking Lordship of our lives that is our primary goal but as we do that as we worship him together as we seek to conform our lives to his purposes as we seek to pray for his purposes in this city there is a sense of it unites us together because you say you too you're also desiring that you're also seeking to conform your life to Christ's commands you're also finding it hard at times there's a commonality that comes between us as we all together seek to be faithful to Christ. And so Christianity is unique. You see this as you compare it to different world religions. Often world religions stay in the area that they came from. So Hinduism is synonymous with the Indian subcontinent. Islam, is, uh, if you compare a map of the 8th century caliphate with the, and compare it now where Islam dominates, basically it's the same place. The Islam's dominated around the kind of what we call the 1040 window, kind of North Africa, Middle East area. Same with um, Taoism and Buddhism it stayed largely dominant in the East where it started. But Christianity is different. Look at the historic center of Christianity, and it has shifted over the last 2,000 years. It begins in Jerusalem, then it goes to Antioch, then it perhaps goes to Rome and Europe, and then at some point it goes to North America, and perhaps now it's in Africa, and now, and one day it will be perhaps in China as we see the church exploding there. But the, my point is the church moves, it shifts, because it's a global people, not bound by culture or any one ethnic group. So how do we display this in our life together? if God is reaching and reconciling the nations, and if the church is meant to be a picture of that, and we have the opportunity to demonstrate Christ, the power of Christ, the power of the gospel to humble and reconcile people from different backgrounds around Christ's throne, what does this mean for our life together? And the first thing it means is reconciled relationships. It means meals. It sounds weird, but it sounds kind of you're like, wait a second, you're talking about global injustice and racial, uh, racial and ethnic diver, uh, in, um, in, diver, um, animosity, and you're telling me food is the answer? It doesn't, feel, it doesn't feel like it quite matches up, but I think it is. You see this in this passage where, in verse 48, where he describes um, Peter spending a number of days with them. You can imagine the meals they share the sense of delight and warmth, the sense of reconciliation that they are living out in that moment. There is a reordering of relationships going on here. Peter has changed his relational world as he comes to welcome the Gentiles into the church. He says, if you've really understood that we are now one new man in Christ, that should shape and affect who you relate to. It should shape and affect who's around your dinner table. When you look around the people who make it to your dinner table, who are they? What do they look like? Do they look like you? And do they sound like you? If they only look and sound like you, then maybe you haven't really understood the full extent to which Christ is making one new man in Christ. The great danger is that we have a kind of semblance of multi-ethnicity, cross-cultural church here, where we've got all different nations, but actually it doesn't really change our relationships. We stay in kind of um, ethnic or cultural silos but carry the same divisions and uh, distinctions that we see in the world into our community life together. But Peter is a warning against that. He says, you can't just kind of accept the Gentiles and then not spend time with them. Actually, you've got to have both and. If the gospel is for these guys, it also means your relationships have to reflect that reality. But how do our relationships change? This isn't kind of a, a forced kind of uh, thing where you kind of say, okay, well, you better make sure you've got a full mix of different ethnicities and nationalities around your dinner table tonight. This changes because we find an identity in Christ that takes over every other identity, that that becomes the defining thing about us. It says if you're a Christian, your faith in Christ is more significant than about you than where you come from, or what you do, or your educational background. That is the defining reality of who you are. Those things are true. You're not denying those things. But your faith in Christ is the thing that defines you. And it says you have more in common with a brother and sister in Christ who has all sorts of other things not in common with you. They might come from somewhere else. They might have a different background and all sorts of other things. But you have more in common with them than someone who has shares your background but doesn't share your faith in Christ. If that's not true... For you, then I would suggest it perhaps suggests you're not taking your faith very seriously. That actually it hasn't come to be the dominating reality at the heart of who you are. Now, we hear this vision. We say we have a new identity in Christ. We've been formed into one new man. But you know what? To actually live this out is hard. Because the minute you, and some of you have experienced this, you come to Grace, this Is the first time you've been in what we call a multicultural, multi-ethnic church, that you've been only in a kind of monoethnic church before with just people who look and sound like you. And you come into an environment like this, and actually the first thing you're going to find is it's harder because you don't have, the same, you don't have everything in common with the, with the people around you. And actually, it's very easily to be misunderstood. Let me give you one example. Maybe you've come to Britain, and maybe you're from a loud and gregarious and friendly culture, um, like, like America, um, <laughs> and uh, say you came in on a Sunday, and, uh, and you said, hi, nice to see you, and a British person said, thank you, nice to see you, <laughs> and inside, they were whooping with delight, but outside, they didn't really show it, and and, and you know what, sometimes they might not even say hi to you, because that's British culture, apparently that's, <laughs> apparently that's okay, um, <laughs> And let me apologize now if, you're part of, if you've been offended um, on behalf of, of my, uh, my fellow Brits. Um, in that moment, there's so much opportunity for misunderstanding, isn't there? There's so much opportunity to say, why is he doing it like that? Why are they so weird? Why do they eat so weird food? Or say such weird things? Or fill in the blank? And then with that weirdness, a sense of withdrawal, because it's just going to be harder for me to understand you. Jen and I, we do... Um, marriage prep with folk, and we see this. When you have a, two folks coming from different cultural backgrounds or whatever, that actually makes things harder a little bit initially. Uh, Jen and I, we, we come from a similar kind of place just outside of London, we went to the same university, we listened to the same radio station growing up, which was Radio 4, which is like a radio station for 50-year-old people. It's like <laughs> like talk radio, basically. Um, so like you know, we, we kind of had stuff in common that even, meant, even though we didn't know each other at that time, we could kind of look back and say, oh, you, you did that too, or, and that kind of thing. But if you're coming from a different background, sometimes you've got to work hard to understand the other person. Say, oh, you want want that? Why do you want that? Or are you saying what I think you're saying? Because I I don't understand why you'd say that. That kind of thing that has to go on. And if that's true in romantic relationships, that will be true in the church. The minute you enter into a context like this, you open yourself up to misunderstanding. Perhaps even inadvertently jokes that hurt you. Or perhaps the sense that you feel like you need to adapt your behavior to fit in. An environment. Uh, Brian Lawrence, who's a pastor in the U.S., uh, talks about the kind of challenge of going through multi-ethnic relationships uh, with people who don't understand you. He says, to go again means to open up ourselves to the possibility of pain, the possibility that we'll be hurt. This is hard. But actually, the Bible would tell us to expect that hardness. It would say that we should expect that relationships in the body of Christ will be difficult. I love this that Paul is utterly realistic about the challenge of building relationships in the body of Christ. Because whether it's this or another factor, there are moments, if you really commit into the church, that you're going to be hurt by the church. You're going to be hurt by your brothers and sisters because you had right high expectations of your fellow brother or sister in Christ and they didn't live up to it. And I love the way Paul expects that. In the Ephesians chapter 4, he says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love. If you say, darling, I love you, we've been bearing with one another in love, if you're in a romantic relationship, you say that, I promise you that won't go down well. (laughs) The idea of bearing with someone is not a sign of affection. (laughs) I've really had to bear with this person. I um, said to Andrew after we preached on that service, I said, that describes our professional relationship (laughs) in the sense that we are radically different people, and we at times have had to bear with one another in love. It requires that we take hold of those gifts that God gives us that Christian superpower called forgiveness, (laughs) where actually we will have to regularly forgive one another, regularly be misunderstood by one another. And actually, we might need to say it to the other person, look, I really felt hurt by what you did. It's interesting that Jesus speaks in Matthew 5 and Matthew 18, both of if someone has something against you and if your brother has sinned against you. The expectation is that both are going to happen. There are going to be times where you feel sinned against and there are times where you're going to sin against somebody. So we're going to have to expect that we're going to have to forgive one another. I'd, expe- I'd say if you have never had to forgive anyone in the church, perhaps you've not really been living in community. It requires a, a, a willingness to sympathize with one another, to get inside each other's experience. The Bible in Romans 12 talks about mourning with those who mourn. And what it says is, because we come from different backgrounds and cultures, we're going to have different experiences. And I might not have had your experience, and in order to walk with you as a brother or sister in Christ, I need to mourn with you, I need to sympathize with you, I need to get inside your experience. There's a kind of humility that this requires, to say my experience is not normal, and so I need to sit with you and walk with you through that experience. It means I need to listen and understand what does it mean to be you, and how does that feel, and what's that been like, in order to understand you, and love you, and to relate with you well. This requires a persistent sense of commitment, a sense of conviction that Christ has formed us together, he's given us a unity, and so we will fight to maintain the unity that Christ has given us. But ultimately, it comes out of love. It's got to be love that, that, that does this. It's got to be love that enables us to forgive one another, and keep walking with one another when we're hurt. It's love that enables us to keep persevering. And so it requires us to say, God, would you give us that love? Would you remind us, would you fill us with the love that you have for us so that we might love one another with that same love together? And so as we do this, as we walk through the costly challenge of building a healthy, deep relationship, church with deep relationships, we expect that it's hard, but as we do that, we point to a love of Christ that has the power to unite us around the throne of Christ in a way that the culture can only dream of. But this doesn't just mean inside, it also means outside. And I'll try and be quick here. Are we willing to follow Peter's example and make ourselves uncomfortable to step outside our culture? Peter is setting a pattern for us of cross-cultural mission. And Christ would call us to step outside of our worlds, to make ourselves uncomfortable, to advance the mission of God. You see the discomfort that Peter is experiencing. He's never done this before. He's never been in a Gentile home. And he's a little bit uncomfortable In fact, later on in Galatians 2, the Judaizers come to Antioch and and, uh, basically he goes back to just spending time with Jews. It's a reminder that the discipleship journey sometimes isn't linear, that you move forward and backwards, and perhaps we should expect that. This requires a willingness to step outside of your culture for the sake of the gospel, a desire to reach others and to make ourselves uncomfortable for the mission of God. And that is not normal, should we say. normal, we want to stay comfortable, we want to stay with the people around us. But if we seriously believe that this city is full of people who've never heard of Christ, who come from different cultures and backgrounds, then we think it is absolutely worth us making ourselves uncomfortable for the sake of reaching the nations. Are we willing to step outside of our culture? This, by the way, means first of all being willing to step outside of Christian subculture. It says actually the people of God are never meant just to stay in a kind of holy huddle. You see this in the Jews and the Gentiles here. You see it in the Gospels with the Pharisees and the sinners and tax collectors. The first thing religious people do is they don't want to be around non-religious people. They don't want to be around those sinners because it's a kind of like sense to which sin is contagious. The sense to which I'd rather not be around them because maybe they're going to make me like them. And there's some truth to that. That actually if you spend your time around non-Christians all the time, it's hard because suddenly you have to explain your life choices and you have to kind of resist the temptation to do what they're doing. But this misses the point. Christ phrase for his disciples in John 17 that they he says they are not of this world but then he then he reminds them he's sending them into the world he says I've given them your word and the world has hated them not because they because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world you are not of this world because you look like Christ and Christ is not of this world don't lose your distinctiveness but then he goes on I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Saying, stay in the world. I pray that they would be able to stay in the world. They would be able to stay distinctive, stay rooted in Christ, stay depending on him, stay walking with him in the midst of a culture around them that everybody else is doing something different. Resist the temptation to stay in the Christian sub- 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 subculture, but instead make yourself uncomfortable. Spend time with people who aren't followers of Christ. And in doing so, you have an opportunity to reach the people around you. But it also means willingness to go outside our own cultures and and kind of um, bubbles, so to speak, for the sake of the gospel. There's a great mission tradition of those who have, have seen God's heart for the nations and out of a hunger to spread the fame and knowledge of Christ are willing to go among the nations to preach Christ where he is not known. And you know there's plenty of mission, plenty of opportunities for that sort of mission in this city. We have a meal at Weber Street every uh, once a month, a uh, homeless center. That is a kind of cross-cultural mission. Because you're stepping outside of your culture to say, I want to get to know you, people who are different to me. And that's a kind of cross-cultural experience. Actually, there are all sorts of people in London who do not have relationships with the churches. Whole communities that are, unless you take an active step to enter into that community, they will not be reached by the gospel. One such community in this country, I think, that shows that uh, neglect is the poor. If you look at the church in this country, it is way more likely that the church is full of middle-class people than working-class people. And why is that the case? Because the church has systematically neglected the call to take the gospel to the poor because it's a bit uncomfortable to go and live among them. It's not what we're used to, perhaps, if you're from a different background. And so actually the church has neglected that responsibility, I think. I think about the fact that there are probably somewhere around 200,000 Bengali Muslims in, in, in London, the, one of the large kind of diaspora Bangladeshi community, many of whom have never have heard the gospel in a way that makes sense for them. And wait, they're right on our doorstep. But it would require an intentionality and a willingness to enter into their world, to spend time with them, to connect with people in a really deep, meaningful way. The question is, are we willing to make that kind of sacrifice? Are we willing to make ourselves uncomfortable for the sake of the mission of God? Why? Why would we do that? Because just like this moment, we are convinced that God is still seeking and saving the lost. That God is working in people's lives, drawing them to Himself. That was brought home to me this week. I was in the park next to the library where I, I study, and um, I sat down next to a lady, and I, oh, so the lady sat, next, sat down next to me, and I felt like um, God, like some sense of God wants me to speak to this lady. And that doesn't happen very often to me, and I am from the British culture, so the idea of speaking to strangers is still not that something I want to do straight away. Um, and so I kind of said, I kind of like almost bargained with God. I was like, God, would you give me some kind of really obvious way of connecting, uh, some sort of deep sense of commonality that will then make this conversation flow? And so I started talking to her, and I said, what did you do? She said, oh, I'm a diversity and inclusion consultant. So that's interesting, because actually that's kind of a little bit about connecting with what I'm preaching about this Sunday. And so we talked about Acts 10, and I talked about the Jews having to invite the Gentiles in, etc. cetera. And um, <laughs> so, okay, so that is obviously, Lord, that you wanted me to speak to her. And so we then got talking, and, and, and basically it turns out she was on a, a bit of a spiritual journey she'd just got to the point in her, she's an older lady got to the point where she was no longer pursuing a kind of job for status and i said actually it's very interesting because i fight that temptation for status myself and the antidote i find is knowing the love of christ knowing the love of god when i know the love of god i'm i'm no longer kind of worried about what people think of me and pursuing status and we talked along those lines in another way and then and then it just turns out that actually she'd been kind of meditating on Christ consciousness. Now, she's from a kind of Hindu background. She's grown up in Africa, but kind of from the original family from the Indian subcontinent. And, and she'd been meditating essentially on the love of Christ. And I said, well, it's been really interesting you sat next to me because you basically met the only person in the park who my whole life's ambition is to help people connect with the love of Christ. Um, <laughs> and so, um, and so we, uh, we, we got talking and I got to share the gospel with her and, and, and explain about Christ's death on the cross and we were um, and, and we both kind of were like God has obviously intended this conversation and uh, she's not from London so I've kind of just to find a church where she is and you know read John's gospel and things like that but yeah it's very exciting it was a great reminder for me that that God is at work that he had a plan for that woman and I'm sure that that conversation is one of the many ways that she's going to be drawn towards Christ but that is I believe that God that is the living God who's still at work today drawing men and women to himself, but he requires us to be willing to make ourselves uncomfortable, to lean into the opportunities, and to be willing to spend ourselves just like Christ. See, Christ was the ultimate cross-cultural missionary. He took, laid aside the privileges of being seated at the, hand of the right, hand, right hand of the Father and entered into our world, who took on flesh, who leaves the comfort, comfort of the Father's side, who steps into our world and makes himself uncomfortable ultimately so uncomfortable as willing to die on the cross. It's the very opposite of comfort. Who takes on flesh, who eats with sinners, who spends time with those who could pollute him, but he's not affected. He makes himself unclean. He takes on the judgment of God so that all people who believe in him can be made clean. He becomes an outsider. He is crucified outside the city so that we can become inside us. That we can be drawn in to the family of God. And so we take up the mantle. We seek to take up Peter's model. We seek to take up Christ's model above him to go outside the camp, to make ourselves uncomfortable, and to be willing to be a vessel to be used by God to point to him. So as we close, I want to just step back and say, are we rejoicing at the miracle of the church? the miracle of God's power to reach and reconcile the nations. We were unclean and we've been made clean. That is cause for rejoicing. We're going to take communion in a moment. We're going to celebrate the fact that we have been made clean. Do we hear Christ's call to love each other well? To step over any kind of barriers that might be there, subtle as they are, and say we're going to love each other well, holding on to unity even when it's hard. And we're going to ask Christ to make us like him. To be cross-cultural missionaries. To be those who make ourselves uncomfortable for the sake of the fame of Christ.